Hello, and welcome to this speed listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast. Soon to be exclusive to our Patreon supporters, speed listens are occasional short podcast installments in support of our full-length Six Gun Justice episodes. There is no set release schedule for speed listen installments, but there will always be one or two a month in between our full-length podcast episodes. I'm Paul Bishop, writing solo today as your host for this quick take on The Magnificent Seven. My compadre and Six Gun Justice co-host Richard Prosh and I will each be presenting speed listen installments while continuing to host our regular podcast episodes together. In episode two of the Six Gun Justice podcast, Rich and I discussed the pros, cons, and similarities and differences between The Magnificent Seven and The Wild Bunch. We took a path focusing more on film criticism than the histories behind the movies. The Magnificent Seven has been my favorite Western since I saw it for the first time as an impressionable 10-year-old. The film is only nominally about seven hired gunslingers who get a shot at redemption while employed to protect Mexican villagers against a rapacious bandit. For me, the film embodies themes of honor, loyalty, relentlessness, bravery, and choosing to do the right thing despite overwhelming odds. These were the male traits I grew up wanting to emulate, and all of this made The Magnificent Seven the soundtrack to my teenhood. I want to use this speed listen installment to take listeners behind the scenes of the actual production. Released in 1960, The Magnificent Seven was directed by John Sturgis and starred Yul Brenner, Eli Wallach, Steve McQueen, James Coburn, Robert Vaughn, Charles Bronson, Brad Dexter, and Horse Buckholes. It's the sort of Western you should show to people who think they don't like Westerns. On one hand, it's a rousingly old-fashioned tale of tarnished heroes who remain courageous under fire. It's also a thoughtful, revisionist meditation on the ways of men who live by their guns. Yul Brenner was an established star, shining in another of his signature roles as Chris Adams, the man in black who makes sure he shoots first and last and seldom asks questions. Eli Wallach, who transformed himself into Calvera, the bandit chief, was also a known commodity. Brad Dexter had played tough guys in numerous films, but he was better known for his short marriage to Peggy Lee, his friendship with Marilyn Monroe, and saving Frank Sinatra from drowning while on vacation in Hawaii. Dexter had previously worked with director John Sturgis, so when Sinatra asked Sturgis to cast Dexter as a favor for saving his life, Sturgis agreed. While the other actors cast as the remaining members of the Seven were little known, their barely repressed star power completely overshadowed Dexter's performance as Harry Luck, making him the only one of the Seven whose name nobody can remember. Steve McQueen, James Coburn, Robert Vaughn, and Charles Bronson would all go on to become movie icons. Even German actor Horst Buckles, who played the youngest of the gunmen, Chico, went on to become a huge star in Europe. The film itself is a remake of Akira Kawasawa's 1954 Japanese film, Seven Samurai. The Magnificent Seven replaces swords with six guns when a group of gunfighters are hired to protect a small village in Mexico from a gang of marauding bandits led by the deadly Calvera. Actor Anthony Quinn originally had the idea to remake the Seven Samurai as a Western. He brought the idea to his buddy, Yul Brenner, who he knew was looking to direct his first film. Brenner often insisted he was a director and not an actor, which was fine by Quinn, who wanted to star in the film himself. Brenner liked the idea and approached producer Walter Mirisch. 
Having Quinn attached to the deal, however, became an issue. Even though Quinn had won two Oscars for Best Supporting Actor, studios didn't see him as a leading man who could carry a movie on his presence alone. So when Mirish acquired the rights from Japan's Toho Studios, he finalized a distribution deal with United Artists with three caveats. Quinn had to go, Yul Brenner had to take the lead role, and John Surgis had to be brought in to direct. After much legal wrangling and angry words, Quinn sued Brenner for breach of contract, but ultimately lost his claim because there was nothing in writing. But getting a studio on board was only the start of the challenges. A looming actor strike meant the only chance of getting the movie made was to assemble the main cast before the strike began. This forced decisions, like adding Brad Dexter to the cast, to be made not based on if an actor was right for the part, but if they were available and would sign a contract without haggling and delays. The studio had suggested George Papard, or, believe it or not, Gene Wilder, for the role of Vin Tanner. However, Yul Brenner had been given a major say in casting decisions, and he insisted Steve McQueen be cast in the role, a decision he would quickly come to regret. Steve McQueen was looking for the chance to jump from TV to the big screen. The role of Vin Tanner was exactly what he wanted. It wasn't the lead, but it was a strong supporting lead, and a bigger role than the remainder of the seven. However, the producers of his TV series, Wanted Dead or Alive, wouldn't release him, as it would mean putting their own show behind schedule. McQueen was undeterred, overcoming the problem by deliberately crashing his car into a tree and obtaining a medical certificate excusing him from the set of his TV show for several weeks. To recover from his injuries, McQueen went to Mexico, which just happened to be where The Magnificent Seven was being filmed. As I mentioned earlier, Brenner very quickly regretted his insistence on casting McQueen since they developed a disastrous relationship on the set, stemming from Brenner's frustrations over McQueen's efforts to upstage him. McQueen was constantly trying to draw attention to himself and away from Yul Brenner. In the Boot Hill scene early in the movie, McQueen is sitting next to Brenner on top of a funeral coach when he begins shaking a shotgun shell near his ear while Brenner is delivering his dialogue. In another scene, when Brenner begins to say his lines, McQueen takes off his hat and holds it up to check the sun and wind direction. Later, when the gunslingers are riding across a stream into Mexico, McQueen is riding behind Brenner when he bends down from the saddle to dip his hat into the water, all to get eyes on him and not Brenner. Yul Brenner, who was 5'10", was concerned to make sure he always appeared substantially taller than McQueen, who topped out at 5'9 Brenner went so far as to make a little mound of earth to stand on in all their shots together. For his part, McQueen would casually kick at the mound every time he passed by it. In the film, Yul Brenner's character sported a cult peacemaker with an ivory grip. McQueen didn't like it because it was flashy. Reportedly, he complained to Robert Vaughn, saying, You didn't notice it? It has a pearl handle. He shouldn't have a gun like that. It's too fancy. Nobody's going to look at anything else with that gun in the picture. McQueen also complained about the size of Brenner's horse, mostly because it was the biggest. Vaughn replied the horse he was riding was actually the biggest. I don't care about yours, McQueen told him. It's Brenner's horse I'm worried about. Both men possessed egos the size of the Grand Canyon. It got so bad, Brenner employed someone to watch McQueen and report on how many times McQueen touched or played with his hat whenever Brenner was speaking. In the end, Brenner confronted his co-star, proclaiming, if you don't stop it, I'm going to take off my hat, then no one will look at you for the rest of the film. 
When newspapers started reporting on the altercations on the set between Brenner and McQueen, Brenner issued a press statement declaring, I never feud with actors. I feud with studios. The one-upmanship between Brenner and McQueen spread to the other actors, and they all started pulling stunts of their own in order to get the audience's attention. While a lot of the attention-hogging did make it into the finished film, John Sturgis was terrified by how quickly he lost control of his cast. In later years, Brenner and McQueen reconciled. When he was in the later stages of cancer, McQueen called Brenner to thank him. What for, Brenner asked. You could have kicked me off the movie when I rattled you, McQueen said, but you let me stay, and that picture made me, so thanks. Brenner replied, I am the king, and you are the rebel prince, every bit as royal and dangerous to cross. McQueen told his biographer, I had to make it up with Ewell, because without him, I wouldn't have been in that picture. Eli Wallach took to his role as a bandit leader, Calvera, with enthusiastic relish. Because of the pressure of the actor strike, John Sturgis hired a group of Mexican locals to play Calvera's bandit gang without realizing they were a real bandit gang. For their part, the gang instantly adopted Wallach as one of their own. Every day in the mornings after Wallach was in costume, but before the filming started, the members of the bandit gang would take Wallach riding with them, teaching him how to sit in the saddle properly and to ride with confidence. They also insisted on doing the final checks on Wallach's horse tack and prop guns before he was allowed to use either. They even went so far as to demand changes to Wallach's costume. They added a silk shirt, big silver conchos on the outside seams of his pants, gold rings on his hands, and several gold teeth. They told Wallach the strength of a bandit leader was often determined by the flagrant display of his wealth. As a final touch to his character's personality, Wallach obtained the silver-trimmed saddle Marlon Brando used in One-Eyed Jacks. All was not completely perfect, as Eli Wallach constantly had problems getting his gun back in its holster. He was better off than Horse Buckles, who accidentally shot himself in the leg with a blank cartridge. Fortunately, the resulting injury only amounted to a huge and painful welt. Buckles did recover enough to take on the bullfight scene, which was totally improvised. Someone had found a bull near the set, and Sturgis decided to let it wander into a scene with Buckles to see if he would take advantage of the moment and run with it. Sterling Hayden was originally supposed to play the knife expert Brit, but when he dropped out for unknown reasons, director John Sturgis sent out an extensive casting call. Robert Vaughn, who was already cast as Lee, a wanted gunslinger who had lost his nerve, recommended his old schoolmate and friend James Coburn for the role. Coburn was a big fan of The Seven Samurai. His favorite role in the film was the character he ended up playing in the Americanized version. Coburn deliberately incorporated Sejime Aguchi's performance as Kuzo into his own performance in The Magnificent Seven. Friends for 50 years, Vaughn and Coburn often recommended each other for jobs. The Magnificent Seven was the only film they worked together on. The script was another subject of contention. Associate producer Lou Morheim commissioned Walter Bernstein, a blacklisted scriptwriter, to faithfully adapt the first draft from the original script written by Shinobu Hashimoto, Hideo Oguni, and Akira Kurosawa. When United Artists turned the film production over to executive producer Walter Mirisch, he and Brenner brought in Walter Newman, whose version is largely what's on the screen. When Newman was unavailable to be on site during the film's principal photography in Mexico, William Roberts was hired. His job was to handle the changes to the script, insisted upon by censors from the Mexican government, 
whose job it was to present the Mexicans in the picture in a more favorable light. Among numerous other demands, the censors required the actors playing peasants to always be wearing clean clothes, despite being farmers. This caused a huge delay, since it meant dozens of intentionally dirty costumes had to be thoroughly cleaned before filming could commence. All this stemmed from the shooting of a movie called Veracruz in Mexico in 1954, in which the Mexican people were appallingly depicted. Justifiably, from then onwards, the government insisted on strict control of how its nation and its citizens were portrayed in feature films shot south of the border. Newman, the previous screenwriter, was not happy with the changes. He also objected to how Sturgis filmed several of his scenes, and he became furious when Sturgis gave some of Yul Brenner's carefully crafted, character-driven lines to Steve McQueen and Charles Bronson. When Roberts asked the Writers Guild of America for a co-credit on the film, Newman became so livid about the situation, he asked for his name to be removed from the credits. The script did leave one question wide open regarding the killing of a number of the movie's heroes. Due to some excellent writing and the evolving skills of the actors portraying them, these were characters with whom the audience would become emotionally invested in as individuals. While the screenplay mentioned which of the seven died, it didn't specify the order, nor was it clear how each of them was to die, since the climactic battle was not choreographed. So Sturgis came up with the idea to kill off those of the seven who were destined to die in the order in which they had been cast. Lee, Robert Vaughn, Harry Luck, Brad Dexter, Bernardo O'Reilly, Charles Bronson, and Britt, James Coburn. Vaughn lobbied against dying first because his character was especially created for him, so Sturges slightly changed the final death sequence. Harry Luck, Brad Dexter, is shot while riding back into town to join the seven who are holed up in a cantina. Lee, Robert Vaughn, is shot after killing three bandits who were holding several villagers hostage in a farmhouse. Britt, James Coburn, is shot in the chest after he empties his six-gun from behind the cover of a low wall and pops up preparing to throw his knife. Bernardo O'Reilly, Charles Bronson, is wounded several times before he finally dies after being shot in the stomach while saving three young boys who he knows have foolishly come to worship him. Finally, Calvera, Eli Wallach, is shot and killed by Chris, Yul Brenner. Each character is given an emotionally jolting end, not just dying, but going out in a manner specific to their character. But while the four heroic gunslingers go out in varying blazes of glory, Eli Wallach takes Calvera's final moments to a whole other level, going out in one of the greatest scenery-chewing death scenes ever. It's never clearly shown how many people each member of the Seven killed. If one were to look at clear cases of on-screen killings, Steve McQueen's character has the most, while Brad Dexter has only one kill. Total body count in the film? 55. In the end, of course, neither Calvera nor the gunfighters who opposed him emerge as true victors. The meek, or to be more precise, the Mexican farmers, are the ones who inherit the earth. But Chris, Vin, and their five cohorts wind up becoming legends, living or otherwise, by being true to their word and quick with their guns. And yes, by being truly magnificent. Thanks for listening to this exclusive Speed Listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast. Remember to check out the Six Gun Justice website at www.sixgunjustice.com. You can follow the Six Gun Justice podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can comment on our Six Gun Justice podcast episodes or our Speed Listen installments by emailing us at sixgunjusticewesterns at gmail.com. 
Till next time, be safe, keep your Stetson clean, your horse ready, and your six guns loaded. Adios!